Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle's programme all about the built environment. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up... Anything you eat almost is the result of an insect pollinating a flower. So if that bee is buzzing around your head, just thank him for the apple you're eating. Our cities are exciting and dynamic places, full of buildings and bustling with people. But beyond the concrete and humans, though, there is a world of flora and fauna, which also contributes to the success of urban environments. Today, we explore the biodiversity present in our cities, from a sanctuary woven into the fabric of a country's capital to the importance of urban insect life, plus a turtle rehabilitation scheme coming out of the Emirates too. All that coming up over the next 30 minutes right here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. The plants that grow, the animals that scurry and insects that crawl about our cities are just as important to the urban environment as a reliable transport system or a vibrant central square. Creepy crawlies, as the nickname suggests, are an often maligned group of creatures, but we rely on them as cleaners, pollinators, pest controllers and even as food for other animals. DNA Insect Scan is a new biodiversity measurement tool from SGS and the Dutch horticultural specialist Mobilane. It uses DNA testing to measure the effectiveness of natural urban habitats for sustaining insect life. And I'm joined now by Willem van Streen, Innovation Manager for the Global Biosciences Centre at SGS Search. Willem, thank you for joining me. Now, I wanted to start by asking you about these green spaces we often see tacked onto the side of buildings or springing from a planter box on a rooftop. Are these actually good places to actually sustain any insect life? They certainly are. I mean, for us, it looks like a barren landscape, maybe, but that means there's ecosystem. There's even soil where they can lay their eggs and there's plants and flowers they can visit. And in fact, I think every little thing we do matters. It's all the little things we did that got us in the situation of massive insect decline. And the fantastic thing about insects is they can recover very fast. I mean, they've got a short life cycle, have a lot of offspring. So anything we can do to give them a bit more help is pretty much an immediate effect. And if you look in our cities, it actually, if you now look at how we deal with agriculture outside our cities, it can be seen as a safe haven. There's pesticides use, there's monocultures in some rural areas. So I think we really have no choice to give them this safe haven in our cities as well. And tell us, what's the benefit of having creepy crawlers and insects running up and down your house? Tell us, what's the good thing about it? So, I mean, yes, they're seen as a nuisance for many people and a pest maybe. But if you step back and understand what they're doing for us, they're a fantastic group of organisms, right? So they supply what we call these ecosystem services. And in fact, if you think of it, they're in massive decline. So I think in the last 30 years, we've lost 80% of the biomass in Europe. And that brings us into a situation where it's very risky to understand what happened next, right? So that's these planetary boundaries. We have to bring those populations back. But if you look at their individual functions, it's like anything you eat almost is the result of an insect pollinating a flower. So if that bee is buzzing around your head, just thank him for the apple you're eating. And if you have a housefly in your house, the maggot on an early life stage has caused your organic waste to be reduced around your house. And if there is a wasp flying around, that helps with pests. 
I think the most important thing is that they regulate systems. And if you ever got a biodiverse set of insects around, that means there's almost always food for birds and all the mammals and frogs. If that's not the case, there can be times when there's really a food scarcity and these birds also cause their demise. And when the next hatching of insects or grasshoppers occurs, that becomes a plague. So if you think of that and you put that in the context of a, a wasp annoying you through during your lunch and sort of Google the locust plague of the last couple of years in the Middle East, then I think that the answer is very easy. Now, tell us, you work for a company called SGS Search and they, in collaboration with others, have come up with this idea of a DNA insect scan. Could you tell us a little bit just about what you do at SGS Search and, and what this scan is? Yes, so SGS Search services the built environment with inspections, analysis, and certification. As It's part of the SGS group, which is globally operating, and it's sort of the, the largest testing, inspection, and certification company. I'm the innovation manager for the Global Biosciences Center. So we develop innovation in the space of biosciences or biology using DNA analysis and microbiology and ecology. And one thing we, we developed relatively recently is this DNA insect scan. And this is based on a concept called environmental DNA. So it relies on the fact that any organism leaves DNA in the environment they interact with. It's sort of forensic science. We capture that DNA, sequence it, and then identify the species that left it there. It's traditionally used in the aquatic environment, maybe for 10 years already, but we saw the need in SGS to move that into the terrestrial realm and target this much overlooked the very critical group, the insects. And it aligned well with what we saw that municipalities and project developers were talking about when they mentioned biodiversity. They all mentioned insects. And many resort to measures linked to green spaces to achieve that. So we wanted an independent metric between what can be controlled, the choices in greenery, and then this probably the most informative metric in our environment, the status of these insects. For developers, as they begin to persuade city governments to give them planning permissions as they try to encourage locals that their project is good, is this addition of biodiversity on a building increasingly seen as an important element of doing good, but also winning favour and making sure that a project is seen as appealing? Everybody wants to do something, but many are confused on what the best impact would be. Right, And our approach is that you can make the choices you want. We'll offer the independent data on what this does with the first metric following that, so the insects. And I think with that, the way we report it out is that we don't only give the list of names of these 100 insects, we show off pictures. So it makes it something you can relate to. You can actually look, oh, these critters are coming onto my green mall or my green roof. And that helps you understand, helps you maybe influence your neighbors to do the same. And tell us about this partnership. So Mobilane is a big horticultural company, and they offer these green systems, simple solutions for people who want to add green walls, for example, to their homes, to their offices. Tell us what that partnership is about. Yeah, so once we developed this insect scan, we realized that not everybody was caring about this, but we realized that the clients of Mobilane did. 
they care about this biodiversity aspect. And Mobilone developed this fantastic system. It, it looks amazing, but I think their system design really adds a benefit for this biodiversity. Because they have a substrate, they have plant choices, watering systems, and they link it into a way that is really sustainable, right? So their systems are modular, reusable, recyclable. They are lightweight, so you don't need structural changes, and they can use little water or even rainwater. So it's a sustainable solution. It looks fantastic and then enhances biodiversity. So we wanted to allow these customers of them to measure that impact and use that in a positive way to talk about these topics. That it's not only doing this for the looks, it's also doing it for actual things that matter beyond that, like the biodiversity. And finally, just tell me, for people thinking about what they can do, does it help if you've got a house and you add an element of a green wall, if you have a flat roof and you plant it out with plants? Is that an important addition to the health and the environmental sustainability of our, our cities? Absolutely. At some point, your house was built on a meadow or a plant, right? So anything you can do to bring that habitat back helps. And a green wall is something that doesn't cause you to lose any space inside. So that's the fantastic thing about it. And the beauty and the complexity of biodiversity is that the things you do to enhance are not always the things that matter. So sometimes if you're installing a green wall, but you're in an urban concrete jungle, it's going to have an immediate impact, but there's going to be a limit of the overall biodiversity gain that you can achieve because you're surrounded by other pressures onto them. And I think if you do this and start seeing the impact on these critters and birds and everything you're adding, but then think, how can I enhance more? You have to start influencing your neighbors. And that's, I think, where we also like to add these tools to that. You can talk to your neighbors and say, hey, we did this. Can you do the same? And then we get into a motion of a snowballing effect that we get these large corridors. So it starts with a single seed, I would say, and then then influencing the others. Willem van Strien there from SGS. Now, as we heard, one of the big benefits for having a healthy insect population is the effect on plant pollination, which can also play a big role in urban food production. My next guest, Beth Nichols, is a research fellow for the School of Life Sciences at the University of Sussex. And she's been researching how a diverse population of pollinating insects can help prevent food deserts and enable better access to affordable fruit and vegetables. Beth, thank you for speaking with me today. Can you first tell us about that term food desert? What does it actually mean? So those are kind of areas typically in towns where people really struggle to access fresh or nutritious food that might be that you know the only shops that they have that they can buy food from are kind of small convenience stores and they really have to travel pretty far out of their local area to find kind of fresh and nutritious food. Now one of the reasons this matters as you say is about nutrition and about the health of our cities but I guess in the past you know that we had a good world of allotments and people would in their backyards grow some vegetables or some tomatoes at least in the summer Is this something that you're hoping your research could help kind of reignite as a way of growing food at an individual level? Yeah, sure. An individual or a community level, I think, is where urban food production works quite well. We've done some work looking at kind of how much food can you produce in a kind of small area, like the size of an allotment or a garden. And the results were quite surprising. So actually, those kind of small growing spaces where people 
maybe use more environmentally friendly methods of growing food can be really productive. You know, they can kind of produce plenty of food for people to eat, even on a small scale. But one of the things that we don't really know is which insects are important for pollinating those crops and whether we have big enough populations of those insects in urban areas to pollinate the food that we want to grow. So that's what our more recent work has been looking at. So which insects are pollinating the crops and are there enough of them? So Beth, tell us a little bit about the research, how you've gone about it and what you discovered. So with this research, we actually worked directly with the growers themselves. So they helped us with collecting the data. They became what we would call a citizen scientist. So we trained them in how to conduct these surveys of their own allotments or gardens. And basically every month they would look at their flowering crops. So things like tomatoes or beans, or fruit trees, and just simply do a quick snapshot count of which insects were visiting those crops. And together we performed over a thousand surveys across two years. And we found that, you know, a broad range of insects were visiting those crops, everything from bees, butterflies, beetles, wasps as well, which often we don't think of as pollinators. But we did find that bumblebees and hoverflies were the most frequent visitors to the crops. Tell me, you know, in our cities, we often think about the kind of battle against bugs in a way, you know, the, the mosquito, the cockroach, the beetle, the, the ant, they're all being like chased with sprays and powders. Do you think we need a bit of a reassessment about our relationship with the insect world? For sure, for sure. So that's another thing that kind of came out of our research is that, you know, farmers, conventional farmers in rural areas, the amount of pesticides that they're using is really heavily regulated. They're given training in how to apply those pesticides. They're given protective equipment to use when they're applying them. But you or I could go to our kind of local supermarket or garden centre and buy very similar chemicals. And, you know, no one's regulating how much we're applying, whether we're applying it safely. And we know that that has really damaging effects on insects, but also kind of knock on effects on animals that eat those insects as well. So even if you don't really care about bees and butterflies, you might care about hedgehogs and birds that depend on those insects as well. And so, yeah, I would really encourage people to minimise the use of pesticides in their gardens and, you know, councils as well to try and avoid spraying. Beth, you've, you've already pointed perhaps lay off the spray and, and think about some of the plants you add to your garden or to your roof terrace. But perhaps you could leave us today with a couple of ideas that you think are pertinent for the average listener that they can do to help build the lagoon or make a little home for a hotel for the bee. Yeah, so I would encourage you to actually be a bit of a messy gardener. So I think we have a tendency to be really tidy, but if you can leave some areas of dead wood or some longer patches of grass they're really important for insects to kind of hide away in and to overwinter in as well there's lots of great tutorials about how to build your own bee hotel or a hoverfly lagoon and they're really great activities to do with kids as well and i think you really get a kick out of seeing that wildlife starting to use the habitat that you've created and then planting some bee-friendly or butterfly-friendly flowers. Not only do they look really nice, they'll also be providing food for those insects as well. Beth Nichols, thank you for joining me today on The Urbanist.
New Zealand is a country with close attachments to its natural life. From leafy city streets to abundant native bird life, you're never far from wildlife in the city's urban areas. That's certainly true of the capital city of Wellington too, where the wildlife sanctuary Zealandia sits 10 minutes drive from the CBD. Urbanist producer and resident Kiwi David Stevens spoke recently with Zealandia's chief executive, Dr Danielle Shanahan, to discuss the origins of the facility, New Zealand's efforts to be predator-free and the challenges of working within city limits. David began by asking where the idea for the sanctuary originally came from. Zealandia Timara Tane is a urban eco-sanctuary just two kilometres from the downtown CBD of Wellington. It really stemmed from a pretty harebrained idea that you could exclude introduced mammalian predators from an area using a fence. It had never been tried before. It you know, relies on a nine kilometre long fence to protect 225 hectares of regenerating forest and it's been massively successful. And how unique is this in the world? Have you heard of anything similar, especially in relation to how close it is to the city in other spots around the world? There are very few places where anything like this has ever been done or attempted in the world. In fact, I certainly can't think of any that have been this close to a city and have had this big an impact. There are really cool examples of sanctuaries, for example, Mulligan's Flat near Canberra in Australia. But also places like Singapore have amazing big gardens where they promote wildlife. But something like this, Zealandia, this large area of land that's been put aside for nature, is very, very rare anywhere in the globe. And do you think this maybe stems from New Zealand's relatively unique position in being, you know, an island, having relatively few natural predators out there compared to maybe some other places? And New Zealand has a ambition to be predator-free in the future, completely predator-free. Do you think maybe part of this uniqueness of this facility is that New Zealand felt like it was a bit closer to really being able to achieve something here, you know, really being able to eradicate predators where maybe in other countries it wasn't so possible? I'm not going to say it is because I think that's a (laughs) cop-out, you know. So in New Zealand, when the sanctuary was established, it was a really crazy idea that you could build a nine-kilometre-long fence that would successfully exclude 15 different predators from rats right through up to possums and cats. It took thousands of hours of trials, different versions. This was ambitious. It was really an idea built on innovation and to reverse the decline, reverse the loss of biodiversity globally, we need that innovation. And I think while every country, every city has different threats to wildlife. There are ways to deal with those things. So other issues that we deal with in Wellington, for example, are really gnarly weed issues, weeds that have been introduced from other places and have just gone crazy in New Zealand with the fertile soils and temperate climate. So we've got lots of different threats, but I think that ambition, that innovation, is what's really needed to solve some of these problems. So maybe any perception that New Zealand was almost close to being able to really eradicate predators, is actually a result of the work that Zealandia has done. Predator-free New Zealand stemmed because Zealandia was successful. People saw these birds showing up in their backyards. They became motivated to trap themselves in their backyards. And that initiated predator-free communities. And ultimately, the predator-free 2050 ambitious goal of eradicating rats, stoats and possums from the whole of New Zealand. 
And Zealandia is obviously also unique because of how close it is to the urban centre of Wellington. Now, Wellington's not a huge city on the global scale, but can you talk a bit about that interaction between the city and the sanctuary? So the sanctuary itself, as I've mentioned, you know, 225 hectares with a fence around it. But it's filled with, we've reintroduced a number of different bird species, but also invertebrates and a lot of other cool things, a fish recently. What that does is it's provided the source of wildlife for the rest of the city. Species like kaka, which is this really cool big parrot that was endangered in New Zealand. That species introduced to the sanctuary. It now breeds in people's backyards all over the city. In fact, a bit further north, we've got a big population that's spread across this region. This was a species that was completely extinct from this area. It was completely gone. We have reversed the extinction of these species in Wellington region. That means it's not only the species that benefit, it's the people. So we've now got one of the only cities in the world where native bird biodiversity is increasing, not decreasing. Most cities go through something called biotic homogenization. That's where you, wherever you go in the world, you'll see the same kinds of things. You might see sparrows, you might see starlings. But here you get to see New Zealand's native wildlife living right alongside people. And because of that interaction with the city, are people now looking to you when they maybe see an animal in distress or even if they've got too many of an animal in their backyard to try and figure out how to deal with them? Yeah, we certainly get the phone calls. I mean, these are wild animals. They are wild living populations and we certainly don't intervene if someone has too many. Usually the instruction would be stop feeding them, please, or could you talk to your neighbours to stop feeding them? So, you know, that's the main objective there. But we have some really great partners who help with the care of wildlife, in particular uh, Wellington Zoo. They've got a special area called The Nest where they do rehab of, of native birds. So we've got great partnerships happening in the city that really make a biodiversity-rich future possible. And there is one bird that people around the world obviously associate with New Zealand. It's our namesake, the kiwi. What relationship does Zealandia have with the kiwi? Well, we have kiwi inside the sanctuary. We've had them for just over 20 years now. Uh, we have the little spotted kiwi or kiwi pukupuku. They're very cute, this sort of small sort of rugby ball-sized creature. We have one of the densest populations of kiwi pukupuku in New Zealand. They're doing so well that maybe one day our population will become a seed stock for a translocation to somewhere else. Who knows? So really, um, it's in a great position and people can actually see them. Most New Zealanders have never seen a kiwi, which is so shocking to many people in the rest of the world. But here at Zealandia, you can come and see them on a, on a night tour. And I have to say, ashamedly, I am one of those New Zealanders who hasn't seen a kiwi in my life. So I'll have to make sure I visit next time I'm back. But looking at the maybe the nearer future, you know, the ultimate goal for Zealandia is to not be needed. But what are you looking forward to most next? What's your next kind of big project that you're working on that you're really excited about? So our strategy is our hearts are always focused on the sanctuary itself. We've got a 500 year vision of restoration for that sanctuary. But because 500 years is a long time, we've broken our strategy down into 20-year generations. So our current generational strategy is living with nature, transforming how people live with nature in cities, towns and beyond. So we have practical work happening beyond the fence, in particular Sanctuary Disi, Ki Mauri Ora, Te Kai Whara Whara. 
that project focuses on restoring the catchment and tackling some of the gnarliest issues we deal with in urban catchments across the world, like our buried landfills is a good example. All of those things affect New Zealand native fish migrating up and down waterways. This is a major partnership project for us with Mana Whenua, which is the local iwi, the indigenous peoples of New Zealand. And we also partner with a number of communities as well, so businesses, community groups, etc. So that's our, our big next goal. But amidst all of this, because this is so novel, this is so new, we are really focused on sharing our knowledge. So research is a big part of what we do, and sharing that globally is key to our impact. Danielle Shanahan there, in conversation with David Stevens. Lastly today, we visit Chewbacca, Humpty and Dumpty, the three permanent residents at a turtle rehabilitation centre housed in one of Dubai's most luxurious hotels. Gitanjali Krishna brings us this story. It's a sunny morning. Three massive turtles swim leisurely in Dubai's summer sun. Every now and again, they rise to the surface with pops and splashes, gleaming a burnished gold against the emerald green water. And each time they do, Guests in the waterside cafe at the Jumeirah Al-Nasim, ooh and ah, as the Burj Al-Arab glitters in the distance. This is conservation, done Emirati style. The excellent Dubai Turtle Rehabilitation Project rescues and rehabs marine turtles in trouble. And as it's the brainchild of the Jumeirah Group, which owns Burj Al-Arab among other hotels, the rescued turtles live in splendid luxury in the beachfront five-star hotel, the Jumeirah al Nasim. It's a far cry from the troubles that they often face in the Arabian Gulf, which is home to five of the world's seven species of marine turtles. They collide with boats, become entangled in fishing nets, the sudden changes in sea temperatures cause abnormal barnacle growths on their shells, and most commonly, they ingest marine plastics that clog their insides. In that sense, the rehab project at the Jumeirah al Nasim is an important one, for it operates a helpline so that people can report sick or injured turtles, which are then picked up and treated here. Unpredictable weather and unseasonably cold winters in the Gulf are giving grief to many, especially younger turtles. That's why the most sick turtles are brought into the project during the winter months of December, January and February. Barbara Lang Lenton, the director of the project, oversees their treatment, the surgeries to repair their torn carapaces and injured flippers, and much more. As the summer heats up the ocean waters, the turtles who make a full recovery are destined for a globe-trotting life, like many of the guests at the hotel. They get a heartwarming send-off from Dubai locals, hotel guests, students, and the hotel staff on the beach that fringes the Burj Al Arab. Guests also help with the daily feedings, especially of the three permanent residents of the lagoon. Chewbacca, named for the many blistering barnacles on its carapace, Humpty, whose carapace developed a hump because of a bad injury, and Dumpty, who's the friendliest of them all. On a sunny afternoon, I find myself in the company of a dozen guests, delighting at the sight of Dumpty swimming right up to them to accept an offering of cucumber. Later, we all linger to read the posters about marine turtle biology, especially the ones about the critically endangered hawksbill turtles. 
These have been traditionally hunted for the table as well as for their very ornamental shell, which is used to make everything from spectacles to jewelry. And later, Barbara and I partake of the hotel's elegant turtle-themed afternoon tea. Delicate pastries, savouries, and scones arrive atop a specially commissioned turtle sculpture. A portion of the proceeds from the tea, I'm told, go right back into the turtle project. As we tuck into scones with date compote and clotted cream, Barbara explains that all these experiences serve a crucial purpose, given that there are barely 8,000 hawksbills left in the world today. We gaze upon the iconic burj through the picture windows, and she tells me. It's crazy to think that there are more guests in Jumeirah Group hotels right now than there are hawksbills in the wild. Meanwhile, back in the luxurious lagoons of Jumeirah Al Nasim, the rescued turtles recover their strength. Hopefully, soon, most of them will be rewilded, and then they'll swap their high life for the high seas. My thanks there for that report from Geetan Jali Krishna. That's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. For more from the world of urbanism, sign up to the podcast to get new episodes every week. And subscribe to Monocle magazine at monocle.com. Today's show was produced by Carlotta Rabello and David Stevens, and David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, here's Talking Heads with Wild Wild Life. Thank you for listening, city lovers. Yeah.